Please turn in your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 11. This is one of the most well-loved, one of the most popular chapters in all of the book of Hebrews. I've had a number of you telling me, I can't wait till we get to chapter 11. Often Hebrews 11 is called the Hall of Faith. It's a chronicle of the faith of the Old Testament saints. But, you know, I think that most Christians really don't understand why the book, why the chapter 11 is here in the book of Hebrews, and it's where it is in the book of Hebrews. So I want to talk about that just a minute before we dive in. First of all, if you look forward, going forward in chapter 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, having been surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race marked out for us. And these, this great cloud of witnesses are the Old Testament saints described in verse or chapter 11. Now, many times they are portrayed as a cheering section. You can do it. Keep going. I believe in you. That's not at all their testimony. Their testimony is God is faithful. He saw us through to the end. He will see you through to the end as well. They are testifying. They are witnesses to the faithfulness of God. So, Hebrews 11 is vital if we're going to understand the perseverance laid out for us in chapter 12. But it's also essential to the overall message of the book of Hebrews. You remember the message is Jesus is better than anything else. Jesus is better than anything in all the world. Not only is he better, Jesus alone secures salvation for his people. It's not that Jesus gives us a better way. Jesus is the only way. There's no other name given among men by which We must be saved. And the book of Hebrews is written to struggling believers to encourage them and encourage us to persevere to the very end. No matter how difficult the way may be, no matter matter how uh, challenging, how much pressure may be put on us from outside uh, telling us it's not worth it, he says Jesus is better. Jesus is worth everything. Jesus will give you all the grace that you need to make it to the very end. Back in chapter 6, we have a very solemn warning against falling away and against abandoning the Lord Jesus. And the author there appeals to the saints to, uh, in, in verse 12, to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And back in May, we, uh, I preached a message on that, that passage and talked about the link between faith and patience That is, if we truly believe God's promise, that is going to enable us to wait, to be patient for him to fulfill the promise such that we may endure to the very end. So, we see this spiritual reality demonstrated here in chapter 11 over and over again. They had faith which gave them endurance, patience, waiting on God. In chapter 10, which we just completed, we have another solemn warning against falling away. But the author there adds an additional warning about the judgment of God that will fall on all those who do abandon the faith. He said it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But he goes on, and he says in verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. uh, Excuse me, that's in uh, verse 35. Verse 36, you have need of endurance. Verse 38, he says, but my righteous one will live by faith. And he goes on in verse 39, and he says, but we are not those of those who shrink back and are destroyed, 
but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith was that essential ingredient to endurance, preservation of their souls. Well, so we ask, well, what then is this faith? Well, I'm glad you asked. That's what chapter 11 is about. You see, uh, he's told us we must endure, we must persevere, we must do so by faith. And let me tell you what faith is and what it looks like. So there's a vital link between faith and patience, faith and endurance. And so the author wants to help us un, uh, understand that link, to understand and to, as it were, unlock the power of faith. So please follow as I read. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2, and then I'm going to jump down to verse 6. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. Verse 6. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is God's word. Three simple points. I hope you can remember these. Uh, If you want to write them down, that's good. The nature of faith, the tenses, in other words, the time tenses of faith, and then finally the necessity of faith. The nature of faith, the tense or tenses of faith, and the necessity of faith. So let's talk first of all about the nature of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Faith has a lot of meanings. It's tr- it, it, it means different things in Scripture based on its use. For instance, we speak of the faith, those who proclaim the faith, those who abandon the faith. And there, the faith is, uh, is commensurate with the gospel, with, with Christianity, with our confession and our adherence to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that body of truth that we believe, the faith. But then there's saving faith, that faith that uh, believes the promises of God that are rooted in the gospel, that trusts in Jesus Christ for our salvation. Now, let me emphasize here, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, it's by grace you've been saved through faith, and that is not of yourself. That faith didn't come from you. You do not manufacture it. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, lest anyone should boast. So, faith is not something you and I can manufacture. In fact, I I think the best way of describing what faith is and where it comes from, uh, the song Help My Unbelief talked about just how, how utterly helpless we are apart from God to even give us faith. And if you think of in Ephesians 2, it speaks of the, 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 the non-Christian, he is dead in his trespasses and sins. But God, who's rich in mercy, makes us alive in Christ. By grace, we've been saved. And then he goes on and talks about we've been saved by grace through faith. And I think of a dead body, someone who has been taken to the emergency room, and there they, they, they're, the life passed from them. They stopped breathing. They're breathing. Their heart stopped beating. But the doctors were able to go and get, get these paddles and put them on their chest and, 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 and revive them, recognize the, the, the dying patient didn't grab those paddles himself. Someone else had to do it. They had to perform an operation external to him. He was utterly passive in that. But as soon as life entered him once again, two things happened. His heart started beating, and he stopped, started breathing. Those were not voluntary activities. They were inevitable signs of life. As soon as life uh, entered back into him, he started breathing, his heart stopped be- started beating once again. And those are analogous to repentance 
and faith. When God quickens you and God gives you spiritual life, you will do two things. You will repent of your sins and you will trust in Jesus Christ. It's a gift of God. It's the result of the new birth. It's what God gives us. That's saving faith. There's another kind of faith we find in Scripture, and that's you might call it living faith or daily faith. It's faith that, uh, in the promises that God has made to us, believing his word is true, resting in his promises, following his instructions, running with endurance the race marked out for us. And that's really what we're talking about here in Hebrews chapter 11, that living, enduring faith. There are some other types of faith. Obeying faith. It takes, it takes faith to obey the Lord, doesn't it? Sometimes God calls us to difficult obedience. He calls us to love those who are not very lovely. You know, Jesus said, if you love those who love you back, the pagans do that. Pray for those who persecute you. Love your enemies. And we look at that and go, that doesn't make any sense to me. That's difficult obedience. Well, we obey him by faith, believing he knows better than we do. Believing he will enable us to do that which really seems impossible. I would but cannot love, though wooed by love divine. No uh, words can, uh, forget the line there, but can, no, no words can move a, or arguments can move a soul as base as mine. I need God to give me faith to obey him. There is what, I, I can't think of a better word. If you come up with one, let me know. But spiritual ambition faith, demonstrated by William Carey when he said, Attempt great things for God, expect great things from God. Now, Carrie didn't have a promise. If you go to India, I'm going to bring about a massive revival, and it's going to change the country, and lots of people are going to be saved. What he did have was the great commission that said, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And here's the promise, I am with you always to the very end of the world. In other words, Jesus does not say, if you will go, I will promise you this, this kind of return, this many converts, this kind of fruit. He says, if you will go, you will not go on your own. I will go with you. I will sustain you. I will provide. I will protect. Sustaining might be sustain your courage until the people you go to love and proclaim the gospel to kill you, like Jim Elliott. Was the Lord with him when he died a martyr's death? The answer is Yes. They died faithful in the proclamation of Christ. So there's this, I don't know, adventuresome spiritual ambition faith. And then there's a persevering faith. And again, again, that's very similar to what we're talking about in Hebrews 11. It's that faith that enables us, it motivates us. It's the trust in God to sustain us, to persevere to the very end. Now, I think it's important before we talk about more about what faith is, I want to talk for a moment about what faith is not. Faith is not name it and claim it. Faith is not uh, simply imposing your will upon God. There are those who say that God has written a blank check and you are to, uh, all you have to do is fill in the amount. Uh, I don't see anything like that in my Bible. Uh, We are to yield to his will. We're to pray. You have not because you ask not, but we can't go and impose our will upon the Lord. Jesus himself said, Father, if there's any other way, Can you remove this cup from me? But not my will, but yours be done. And that cup was not removed. He went to the cross. Paul prayed three times that God would remove that thorn in his flesh. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected. My power is perfected in your weakness. And so we can't simply name it and claim it. That's not what real faith is. uh, That is self-will. That's not yielding. 
to the will of God. Faith is trusting, trusting in what God has promised, not in what you have set your own heart upon. Faith is also not simply believing whatever you choose to believe in. You have your faith. He has his faith. He has, this is what you believe. It's, it's, that's the, that's the, the confusion of a pluralistic society. People have faith in whatever, and that's supposed to be somehow virtuous. Let me ask you this question. How much faith does it take to die for what you believe? Think about that. One of the strongest arguments for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is that there were 12 men, his apostles, who were witnesses of his ministry, of his life, of his death, of his resurrection, and for decades, every one of those men continued to proclaim that truth. Not one ever went back on the story, and they all died martyrs' deaths, and they went to their graves. They went to their death proclaiming Jesus has risen. How much faith does it take to die for your, what you believe? It takes real faith, genuine faith. Now, there are those who are Islamic martyrs. They die in the name of jihad. Is that an evidence of faith? It absolutely is. That is real, genuine faith. They believe so firmly, if I die this martyr's death, I'm going to be immediately ushered into the presence of 72 virgins, virgins for paradise. They believe that. It's real faith. It's just real faith placed in the wrong thing. It's genuine faith in a lie. And people devote themselves to lies all the time. So the key is not how real is your faith. The key is how real is the object of your faith. That's the really important question. Third thing, faith is not. Faith is not an, ob- an end in itself. In, the, in my introduction, I referred to unlocking the power of faith. Now, in reality, faith itself has no power. Faith is more passive. There's not power to faith per se. Faith doesn't provide what you or I need. Faith receives what we need. I've heard people say of someone who has acted heroically, his faith carried him through. No, his faith did not carry him through. God carried him through. He was looking to God in faith, and God faithfully carried him through. Faith was not the power. God is the power. It's important we're clear on that distinction. The key is not the faith itself. The key is the object of our faith. It's not that we're trusting something or someone. It's who it is we trust. And then fourthly, faith is not simply hoping for the best. Haven't you ever heard people say, well, I'm just, I just believe it's all going to work out for the best. Really? How can you believe that? What's the basis of that kind of confidence? Now, it might, but it might not. And there's no, it's just this amorphous, I believe. It's just optimism that's rooted in nothing. Well, if we're going to talk about faith, it's important we talk about the focus of our faith. The focus is not your faith. It's not your ability to muster up a certain amount of faith. Your focus is on God who is faithful. Your focus is God has spoken, and you are trusting that which he has said. When I was first convicted of my sin and needing to repent and needing to trust in Christ and needing a new heart, needing to, uh, needing to uh, be made new, uh, the Lord had given me a, con- a real conviction, and I was pleading with God to save me, and I felt like he was saying, no, I, I'm willing to save anybody but not you too late for you. You've already, you know, played the hypocrite far too long. 
And a friend shared with me John 6, 37, which said, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. And she said, Jamie, are you coming to Jesus? I said, I'm trying. She said, can Jesus lie? And see, at that point, it wasn't my ability to come to Jesus anymore or my ability to trust him. It was simply, is he telling the truth or is he not? Is he faithful or is he not? And as soon as, I mean, immediately when she asked that question, everything changed. And faith really came alive in my heart because I began to trust the Lord Jesus and not my faith or my savability, as it were. There are a number of synonyms for faith. Believe, trust, depend on, rely on. All of these point to the same reality, expressions of the activity of faith. Now, the faith we're looking at in Hebrews chapter 11 is enduring faith. Hebrews, the Hebrew Christians are being called to endure to the very end. And so, we find here the examples, the testimonies of a number of Old Testament saints who did, in fact, endure to the very end. And the emphasis here is not on the size or the greatness of their faith. It's on the reality of their faith. God spoke. They believed him. And he proved himself faithful. They trusted him, and they found God to be trustworthy And we can follow their example. Now, in chapter 11, verse 1, we find two parallel statements about the nature of faith. It says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It is the conviction of things not seen. It's a restatement of the very same uh, truth, as it were. Assurance, conviction. They, they, They refer to the certainty of the heart and of the mind in your object of faith. And Things hoped for, things not seen, speak to that which God has said, but we cannot yet see. Now, faith has an objective component and a subjective component. The objective component is what God has promised. What God has said is objectively true. Whether you believe it or not, whether you know it or not, whether you understand it or not, all that God has said is objectively true. Nothing can change it. He will never, ever change. His word will never, ever change. His word will not fail. But there's a subjective component to it, and that is our trust in that which God has said. It's that subjective personal apprehension to the objective truth of God's Word. Let's be honest. Sometimes we struggle with unbelief. Sometimes we have assurance that what He says is true, and sometimes we struggle to lay hold of that. Our faith kind of fluctuates even though the objective truth of, God's, uh, of what God has said never changes, never fluctuates. And that's why we sing the song, sang the song a little while ago, help my unbelief, my help must come from thee. That's why we sang, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a, proud, uh, 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 a frowning providence, you can't see what God's up to. He hides a smiling face. All appearances, our God is not for us. Don't trust that. Trust what he says, not what appears. The objective reality of what God has promised to his people never changes. So, the emphasis here is not on your faith. The emphasis is on the faithfulness of God. Now, true faith, this living faith, this enduring faith, this persevering faith produces a a particular, and I'd say an essential outlook on the Christian heart and mind. In our confession, there's a chapter on saving faith, 
But it talks about faith that applies to every aspect of faith. In the second paragraph, it says that the Christian believes God's word is true, whatever is written in it, because you believe in the authority of the one who wrote it. So real faith leads us to believe that his word is true, but it leads us to believe something else too. It leads us to perceive an excellency about his word and about everything he does. Above every other writing, every other idea, every other thing in the world. There are things we read in the scriptures and we scratch our heads and go, I I don't understand that. But even then, we perceive an excellency to the word of God because we understand who he is. We trust him. And so then we yield to his word. Faith leads us to believe his word. It's, uh, It's not seduced by the glitter and the glitz of the world's messages. It's not, it's not sidetracked by what others may say. Faith believes what God says is true. Faith believes that God's ways are best because the Bible tells us God's ways are best. Faith believes that God's commands are right and they're good. Again, sometimes God's commands rub us the wrong way, sort of. Turn the other cheek, Really? Do I really have to do that? Faith believes that his commands are true, that they're right, they're good, and they are good for us. Faith believes that obedience is good for us, even when we don't understand or when it seems difficult. Faith believes that God is all wise because that's how God is described in Scripture. He's he's described as a God of all wisdom. And so faith believes that even when things he does don't make sense. Think about Job. He feared God. He shunned evil. There was no fault to be found in him, as it were. That's what God said to Satan, blameless and upright, fears God and shuns evil. And yet, God allowed Satan to inflict horrible suffering on Job. At no point did Job accuse God of doing wrong. At no point did God say, or did Job say, God is, is, is mistreating me, or God has abandoned me. He said, God, I don't understand what you're doing. I really need you to answer me. And he even comes to a point of demanding an answer. But he worshiped, and he submitted to God. He knew that God is wise. Faith yields to God's providence, even if it's a frowning providence we sang about it a moment ago. Faith believes God is in control. God works all things together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Faith believes that and yields to those even difficult providences in our lives. I often uh, illustrate Romans 8.28 by talking about homemade chocolate cake. I'm not talking about the, the, the box kind you get at the store, you put a, a couple of eggs and some milk in and cook it. That's, I'm talking about the kind you make from scratch. And if you think about all the ingredients in a homemade chocolate cake, milk, yeah, I like that part. Raw eggs, not so much. Baking soda, mm. sugar, uh, you know, okay, butter, probably, in, 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 you know, how many of you when you were kids discovered Baker's unsweet chocolate and thought you were in for a treat? <laughs> I did. Uh, it was horrible, right? And you go through the, the, the different uh, ingredients in a chocolate cake. Some of them are good, but some of them are like, oh, you're kidding. But you take them all and you mix them together You put it in the oven, you give it some time, you let it cook, and what comes out is delicious. And that's a real, uh, a a very fitting illustration of Romans 8, 28. It's not that every single thing that happens in your life is pleasurable, 
But God works all things together for your good if you love him, if you have been called to Christ according to his good and sovereign purposes. Faith believes that. Even when you're grimacing over Baker's unsweet chocolate or baking soda of life. Faith yields to his providence. Faith rests in his grace and mercy. When God says to Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, Paul didn't say, I don't want sufficient grace. I want you to take this thorn out of my flesh. He didn't say that. He trusted God's grace and his mercy. So that's the nature of faith. Faith is trusting the faithfulness of God. That's the nature of faith. Let's talk for a moment about the tenses of faith. There's a present tense, a a, a future tense, and a past tense in faith that we find here. The present benefits of faith are this assurance, this confidence in the here and now. There's a a confidence about who God is, about what he has said, that what he has uh, said is true. What he has done for us in Jesus Christ is yea and amen. God has sealed his covenant in the blood of his son and by an oath. And it's impossible for him to lie so we can have an absolute steadfast confidence right here, right now. It's a present reality. Gives us stability. Gives us assurance. There's also a future focus of faith. Faith looks ahead to those things that God has promised. Many are yet in the future, right? You and I can't see the glories of heaven. I can't conceive of how glorious that must be. And yet, we're called to believe that glory is so wonderful it causes present suffering to pale in significance, not even worth comparing. I have a hard time comprehending of a glory like that, but that that is put out in Scripture for us to lay hold of it, to set our minds on the things which are unseen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are unseen, those are eternal. And so we're not to walk by sight. We're to walk by faith. Faith looks at the future, that which we cannot yet see. Over and over, Scripture calls us to walk by faith, not by sight. There are things you don't see that God is doing now, things that you don't see that God is going to do. And so you have to trust Him based on what he has said, not on what we see. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary, points out that the unseen doesn't just point to the future. It points to the past. We don't see creation, but we believe, faith believes that God created all things from nothing. We can see evidences of it, but we can't see creation, as it were. We can't prove it. Just like the evolutionists can't prove evolution. You can't reproduce it. By faith, we believe that God created all things in seven days, as we read in verse 3, from nothing. And we're going to spend an entire message on talking about creation ex nihilo, out of nothing, uh, after the GA. But faith looks back at things that we can't see, we can't prove, but God said it, and so we'll believe that. We, faith looks at the present realities, things that are going on that we don't yet see. I don't see God with me. I don't feel like he's with me. Right now, I might feel very nervous. I might feel very distressed or I might feel very discouraged or any number of things I might feel and it sure feels like God is not with me. But he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So are we going to lay hold of that that he promised by faith or are we going to allow our feelings to control our outlook on life? Faith looks at present realities. And of course, faith looks at those future realities of what God has promised to us. Faith has a present aspect. It has a future focus, but there's also, uh, we look in the past at these testimonies of faith uh, in these Old Testament saints. 
Now, we call them heroes of the faith, but if you'd asked any one of those uh, men or women mentioned in Hebrews 11, I doubt they would have considered themselves heroes. They would have said, no, God is my hero. I'm just this simple person trying to please God and trusting him to fulfill all he's promised in me or to me. You know, it's interesting as we look at the names, and, and we'll peruse these, we'll study these names, these people more in depth uh, as we go forward, but look at people like uh, Noah and Abraham and Sarah, or, or Isaac and Jacob, and Joseph. They are, these are, are saints in the Old Testament who are prominently featured. Their lives are given to us in great detail. But it's interesting that there are some who are not so well-known, who may not merit an entire lesson in a children's Sunday school class, people like Abel. Uh, we know he gave a better sacrifice, and it cost him his life. Uh, or Enoch, who walked with God and is no more. Uh, God took him from this life. Moses' parents, it, lists, it doesn't mention their names, but it mentions that Moses' parents trusted God, and, uh, and they didn't obey Pharaoh's order. Or Barak or Jephthah. Uh, those are not people that we commonly talk about, but they're mentioned here as heroes of the faith. They're, uh, it's curious to me, Genesis 37 to 50, 13, 14 chapters cover the life of Joseph. An enormous amount of, atten- of biblical information about Joseph, and the only thing we see in chapter 11 is his dying words, by faith he spoke of what God was going to do. It's like, there's a whole lot of faith Joseph demonstrated in other parts of his life, but that's not what it's mentioned here. That's okay. David was prominent in the Old Testament story and prominent in the understanding of the Davidic Davidic covenant and that Jesus would sit on the throne of David. He was the great king of Israel. He was a psalmist who wrote much of our psalm hymn book. He's often mentioned not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. And the only mention he gets is, we don't have time to talk about all the rest, like this guy and this guy, and David. The same is true for Samuel and Gideon, men who uh, served God in mighty ways and carried out exploits for his name. There are also some surprising names. Rahab the prostitute or Samson the colossal failure are mentioned as heroes of the faith. Uh, That actually gives me hope, and I'll explain why when we get to them. But it doesn't talk about others like Joshua and Caleb. Or like Elijah and Elisha. It could say by faith, Elisha uh, or Elijah called down fire from heaven and uh, defeated ba- uh, Balaam's prophet. It could say that, but it doesn't. In fact, he says in verse 32, I don't have time. It says, time would fail me to tell all the stories. What I've told you is enough, basically. So it takes a, a backward look. But he tells these stories of Old Testament characters and their faith to teach us lessons about faith. Now, there's no mention on any part of these Old Testament characters, any of these Old Testament saints, of their faith for salvation. All right, remember I said, what kind of faith are we talking about? We're not talking about saving faith here. In Romans chapter 4, Paul says, Paul quotes the Old Testament to teaching the nature of justification by grace through faith. He says, Abraham trusted God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Say by faith, not by works. Or by grace through faith, not by works. But that's not talked about in Hebrews 11. It's all about their lives. 
And how as followers of Christ, those who are already uh, by faith looking forward to a promised Messiah, they don't know his name, but they were following God, believing. And we see what their faith looked like in real time. Their obedience led to their commendation. They received their commendation, it says, through faith. That's not the same as salvation. That's not entrance into heaven. Okay, again, the, 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 the focus of the stories is their obedience and what they did, their perseverance. But their obedience arose from faith. And the commendation was not, I, I count you righteous in Christ. It's that well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest, your, into the glory of your master. Well, the nature of faith It's trusting the faithfulness of God. The tenses of faith. Faith looks back. It looks at the present. It looks forward. But it looks with the eyes of faith, not at what we see or what we can hear or feel or sense. Well, finally, let's talk about, last few minutes, the necessity of faith in verse 6. And without faith, it's impossible to please God or please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Faith has an essential function. It is essential, it is necessary in order to please God. Again, we're not talking about saving faith here. We're certainly not saying that faith is uh, that, 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 uh, that, uh, that criteria by which we gain access to God. We're not saved because of our faith. It's not a work. Saving faith is simply trusting in the finished work of Jesus and nothing that we could have done. But Paul tells us that whatever is not of faith is of sin. So any self-reliance, any self-effort, any going it alone and not yielding and trusting and depending on the Lord doesn't gain commendation from God. We obey by faith. We serve by faith. We live by faith. We persevere in faith. And God says, well done, good and faithful servants. It is faith that enables us and leads us to walk with God, to trust him, to trust his promises, to, uh, to trust his word such that we bear the fruit of obedience. In the immediate context, he's talking about Enoch. Look at verse 5. He says, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. See that? Faith with Enoch was commended that he pleased God. And then the writer of Hebrews says, and I want you to understand, it's impossible to please God unless you have faith. Faith is an essential, is essential to living God-pleasing lives, to seeking him, to walking with him. Whatever good works Enoch brought forth in his life, and the Bible doesn't recount those good works. It doesn't talk about his exploits. It says he walked with God, and then he was no more. The Lord took him. But those good works are an expression of his faith. They're not a substitute for faith. Enoch couldn't please God without faith, and you can't, and I can't either. There are two expressions of faith here. First of all, there is the intellectual expression. Faith lays hold of your mind. You believe that God exists. Now, that's not simply an intellectual acknowledgement that there is a God up there somewhere. All right? Uh, some, of, uh, some of you are very interested in the whole creationism debate, and, and there is a new, uh, a new uh, a field, I guess, called intelligent design that uh, doesn't necessarily say there is a God who created, but looks at all of the evidence and says there's no way that could possibly exist without an intelligent designer making it happen. And that's kind of a step toward, well, who is that? It must be God. 
Okay, that's all fine and good, but that doesn't go nearly far enough. It might undercut the random evolutionary process, but it doesn't take us to faith in God who said, I have made the world, and I sustain it by the power of my word. Faith believes these truths. How many of you believe that George Washington was a real person? Yeah, I, I think most of you go, well, sure I do. And most, some of you go, yeah, I've heard you say this before. All right. Uh, we believe it. And if I said George Washington's a myth, he, he never, never truly existed, you'd say, Jamie, you're crazy. But if scholars at the Smithsonian Institution, which is like our American authority, authoritative museum, uh, they're not the repository of all truth, by the way, but anyway. Uh, but if scholars came up and exposed that there actually was this massive conspiracy, it really was a lie. There never was a cherry tree, and there never was a George Washington. It's just a made-up story to make us all feel good. That wouldn't change our lives at all. You'd go, oh, wow. <laughs> uh, boy, I learned some things that weren't true. Okay, and, but that wouldn't change the way you live on a daily basis. It might shake your confidence in your history teacher and maybe in some of the traditions of our country, but it would not change our hope, our dreams, our morals. It would not change our lives because we are not trusting George Washington to do anything for us. But Paul said, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, we above all men are most to be pitied. If this is just a made-up story, we're the biggest losers in the entire world. Faith believes God exists such that we stake our very lives on the reality of the biblical testimony about God, who he is, and what he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Faith lays hold of God, who is presented to us as the creator and sustainer of all things, as the sovereign redeemer of a people. Faith uh, tells us that God is our creator, that God is our, uh, uh, our, 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 our faithful heavenly father. It presents to us, Scripture presents to us all of his attributes, his character, his, his sovereignty, his love, his justice, his mercy. Faith, believing God exists, embraces all of those things and says, I believe those things. Now, is it possible to believe something you don't really believe? If I were to tell you right now the chairs that you're sitting on are not blue, they're really pink. You'd say, again, Jamie, you're crazy. If I were to say, listen, I need you to believe this. I need you to put your faith in the fact that these chairs really are pink. I'm asking you to do something impossible because I'm asking you to trust something you know is not true. All right? You can't simply decide to believe something that you know isn't true. But there are things we know are true, but we just don't see them the truths, the promises of Scripture. We know intellectually they're true, but sometimes we wrestle with unbelief. It's not that we can't believe them, or we, it's impossible to believe them. Sometimes it's just hard to believe them because our senses tell us other things. But God puts it within us to believe those things because they are true. And so there is a, an act of the will involved in choosing to believe rather than to yield to unbelief. So there's this intellectual expression of faith, but there's also an affectional expression of faith. faith. Faith lays hold of your affections. You believe not only that God exists, but that he rewards those who seek him. You believe that God is as great and as glorious and as good as the Bible tells us he is. You believe that his steadfast love does, in fact, endure forever. You believe the promises in his word such that you base your life upon them, and you put your hope in his promises. You believe his warnings are true, so you take heed to those warnings. 
And you don't play with fire, as it were, regarding sin. You bank your hopes on Jesus. You believe he is the pearl of great price. You believe Psalm 61 when it says, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So you're not seduced by the pleasures of the world because you know the pleasures to be had are found in Christ. You believe Psalm 36 verses 7 and 8 that says, how precious is your steadfast love. Oh, God, the children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. That's where refuge is found. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. You believe that's the kind of God we serve. It not only affects your, your objective beliefs, but your affections. You believe these things are true, and they're good and wonderful, and you drink deeply of the fountain of life. In Isaiah 55, the Lord says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy wine and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And ask this question, why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Faith recognizes that all the stuff out there in the world that says, here it is, come get it, it will not satisfy. It will leave you empty. They are broken cisterns that hold no water. But the Lord goes on and says, listen to me. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. Faith believes those things such that we are not drawn in by the seductions of the world. And we are drawn to Christ as the fountain of living water. Faith believes that the deepest longings of our soul will be satisfied because God tells us that. All right? Now, you have an enemy. His name is Satan. He's the enemy of your soul. And he wants you to buy into the same lie that he used against Eve. God is stingy. God is holding out on you. If you do what God says, you are missing something really important. God doesn't really want you to be happy. He doesn't really want you to be fulfilled. Kids, hear me. The world is telling you God is a cosmic spoil sport. That God doesn't care about your joy. In fact, he will take pleasure in making your life hard. That's what the world says, that God wants you to miss out on the things that are really great. Scripture says God is really great, and what you experience in Christ is really great. At 14 years old, I was so totally blinded to these truths, and I believed that it was through pursuing sinful things and, 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 and consorting with sinful people that I was going to find joy and fulfillment and happiness. And I was emptier and emptier. And when the Lord changed my heart, when he saved me, I began to find joy that I had never known possible. I began to know fellowship and community that I never imagined. It's at his right hand or pleasure's forevermore. I began to experience an intimacy with the Lord I didn't know was possible. Faith sees through those lies. Faith believes that God does reward those who seek him. Faith believes that his rewards are more valuable and more satisfying than anything the world could ever offer you. That's what faith is. That's what faith does. That's the assurance of faith that what God has said really is true. That's the stability that rests on what he has got, what God has said rather than what you might feel. Because what you and I feel changes many times from day to day. That's the confidence that we can live with, that he will do what he has said that he would do. 
So by faith, we cast ourselves upon him. We depend on him. We delight in him. And we venture out where he might send us, believing he will be with you and he will hold you fast. So just a few finishing remarks. First of all, faith focuses on what God has promised, not on any kind of self-reliance or self-will. We somehow continue to imagine, I have it within myself to make this happen. And faith says, no, no, I need Christ. I need to rely on him. I need to see how weak I am and how incapable I am that I might find him to be my strength. That's one of the reasons for trials, to show us that you don't have it in you. In James 1, God says the testing of your faith produces endurance. He is testing our faith. That word test means to to determine if it's genuine, prove that it is genuine, and to refine it and make it more pure. And so it's the testing of our faith that makes us more mature. It needs to be refined. It needs to be strengthened. Faith that has not been tested is not worth much. You don't know if you really, really trust God or not until you have to trust God, right? But faith that is tested, faith that is proved genuine, really is it's proving that God is genuine, that God is faithful, that is strong. Martin Luther said, one Christian who's been tempted is worth a thousand who have not. I agree with that. Well, secondly, faith is essential if you would overcome besetting sin. The reason we get ensnared in besetting sin is we're not convinced that that sin will bring more, that we're not convinced that sin will bring destruction and sorrow. We believe a lie that it will bring more fulfillment and pleasure than obedience to the Lord. Why do men and some women, frankly, struggle with pornography? It's because they don't believe that God's design for sex is infinitely better than the world's perversion of it. They don't believe that God truly has our good and our great joy in mind when he gave that glorious gift, and it's best when we engage in that gift his way only. They're not convinced that the fleeting pleasures of pornography spoil the joy that God intended for us to have in this gift within the sacred confines of marriage. Third, I want you to see as faithful is essential if we're going to have a fruitful prayer life. There are a lot of prayers, uh, mysteries about prayer I can't explain. I, I do not understand many things about prayer. Does prayer change things? Well, does it change God's mind? Prayer doesn't change God's mind. Does it change God? No. Does it change things? Well, he says you have not because you ask not. He tells us that he wants us to be like that, that, that persistent widow who continues to knock and seek and plead. And he says, well, I find that your faith has not failed when I come back. Will you be like that? Faith is essential, believing he wants us to pray. He welcomes us to pray and that he answers and provides in response to our prayers. How does that square with the sovereignty of God? I don't know, except that he ordains the means, part of which is prayer, as well as the end, the fulfillment of his will. Faith is also essential to obedience. Faith delights in God's law. Faith says, remember earlier I said faith believes his word and and sees the excellency of everything written in his word. Faith recognizing God's law is true, it's right, it's good, and it's good for us. Paul says, I delight in God's law, but I find this other thing going on, this other law in me that battles against it. Well, we find something in us that sometimes says the law is not good. That's the flesh battling against, that's the remaining elements of sin. But faith says, no, the law is wonderful. It's good. It's good for me. 
And that's essential if we would truly obey the Lord. But it looks to the Lord to help us obey rather than just, I can do that on my own. And faith finally is essential if we would trust the Lord in times of trial. The natural tendency is to rely on ourselves. We all tend to be self-reliant, don't we? Don't we? We somehow think, well, I can handle this on my own. It's like the three-year-old who says, Daddy, I can do it. And then he falls down and skins his knees. And, you know, it's like, son, just listen. Just, just let me hold your hand here. All right? Faith trusts that our Father knows better than we do. Our emotions tell us that faith, God might have abandoned us. But, and that causes our faith to weaken and sometimes falter. But those, those are not true. And you're, you're, you're going through a hard time and someone takes you to Romans 8.28 and you, your response in unbelief says, how is that supposed to comfort me? It's because you're not believing it. But if you truly believe those things are true, then you can find comfort in the promises and the consolations of God. So faith is essential if you're going to derive comfort from the promises of God. That's why we, I talk about these things a lot when you're not going through hard times. So you'll have that, that filtering down into your mind so when hard times hit, you have some foundation from which to respond. I love the quote by Alexander McLaren that says, it is difficult to begin to trust in the grip of calamity. It's, it's hard to begin to trust God when trouble hits. But feet accustomed to the road of God can find it even in the dark. And if you have a solid foundation of trusting in the goodness and the wisdom of God, you're believing his promises, then when calamity hits, when hard things hit, when suffering hits, and Peter says, don't be surprised like something strange were happening to you. If we can respond in faith, we can come forth and shine to the glory of our God. I have this poem my wife taught me years ago. Three men were walking on a wall, feeling faith in fact. When feeling took an awful fall and faith was taken back. See, faith is, it's variable, right? It's not always as stable as we'd like it to be. But fact, uh, but fact remain, or excuse me, so close was faith to feeling, he stumbled and fell too. But fact remain, that objective reality, things hoped for, things not seen. Fact remain, pulled faith back, and faith brought feeling too. We must lay hold of those realities, believe the unchanging realities of God's word. Faith is essential if we would persevere under trial. That's the message of the book of Hebrews. Faith leads us to rest on the promises of God. Faith leads us, leads us even to sing, help my unbelief, my help must come from thee. Now we're going to sing another song about faith. By faith we conquer. Brother, would you come?